Konnichiwa, and welcome back to the Okie Okie Show. I'm Donna. And I'm Brandon. And this is our monthly book club style movie discussion where we talk about Japanese films from our Oklahoma perspective. So, what did we watch this month? Uh, this month we watched uh, 1997's uh, Hanabi, or Fireworks. Uh, seems like this one kind of goes more so by its uh, Japanese title than, than the American translation of Fireworks. Uh, so if you're wanting to find it anywhere, H-A-N-A-B-I, Hanabi, uh, 1997. Uh, that'd be the best way to find it. Uh, you can rent it off of uh, Amazon Prime or YouTube. There's a handful of places that are streaming it uh, available for rent or with ads. Um, and uh, that is what we watched. Directed, written, edited, and starring uh, Takashi uh, Kitano. Uh, Takeshi Kitano. Oh, that I, I, wow, really messed it up. Takashi, Takeshi Kitano. Yeah. Or Beat Takano is his uh, stage name, correct? Yeah. Um, Beat. He, he was originally big in like comedy and TV. Um, but I, I'd say this is considered one of his first breakout, like movies that he, that people took seriously. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that a little bit later, but, um, we will be talking about this movie. And so in the course of that, we're going to be spoiling its plot. So if you did want to watch it without having anything spoiled for you, recommend, uh, checking that out. And, um, you're always welcome to reach out to us, uh, via email or through anchor.fm, uh, if you go there and find the Okie Okie Show, uh, you'll be able to leave us a voice message. And um, if you do that, we will review it and most likely discuss it on the show. And mm-hmm. uh, you can join our little uh, book club of a uh, podcast here and watch some some films from overseas. Yeah, which that's another thing I want to get off the table right up front while we're taking care of a little business is that this is open for discussion so you can even talk to us about movies we've done in the past we're happy to revisit and also you know like we said we're we're from oklahoma we are by no means experts on japan or film so you know if you have something to add or even correct we are here for it and you're welcome to tell us but we will also have a fact check at the end of the episode, just in case we slipped anything up in there. Mm-hmm. We're just uh, two fans of uh, one to kind of explore, explore Japanese cinema and uh, broaden our horizons. We, we, we've watched a lot of these dangle American films and we wanted to, to, to have a reason and not that you have to have a reason to watch foreign language films, but uh, this has uh, definitely helped us keep up over the year, uh, watching, watching different kind of movies. Yeah. And this is our 12th episode. Yes. This marks one year of doing this. One whole year. Uh, you have now 12 episodes. It's also just once a month. It's the 15th of every month. This podcast comes out. And so, you know, it's not, uh, not a weekly commitment or anything. And you also definitely don't have to participate. You're welcome to just watch the movie or not watch the movie until after you listen to it and hear what we have to say about it. But Mm-hmm. Regardless, we we invite you in on the fun. I would say just by listening, you're you're part of part of the fun. Oh yeah, definitely. But there's there's plenty of ways to join in and, and join in with that. So um, 
with that out of the way, do you want to jump into the plot of Hanabi? Yeah. All right. So, as we've kind of said, this stars um, Takeshi Kitano, and he plays a former detective who is no longer working. He's really just taking care of his wife, but an incident instigated this departure from the the team he was on where uh, one of his team members got killed and two others severely injured. And, um, and the movie kind of follows dealing with the repercussions of things kind of falling apart in his life and some of the other detectives lives. Yes. Um, and taking care of his wife because she is, um, sick with, uh, terminal illness. I believe it's cancer. Leukemia. Yeah. Um, and by all accounts, uh, she does not have very long to live. Um, and, uh, both, uh, Takashi and his wife, are very quiet individuals, um, especially what is presented in the film. I think up front, um, he maybe says 10 words. He gets a little bit more towards the end of the movie, but really, I mean, he can't max out 50 words for the film, right? Yeah. He speaks a lot more with his fists. (laughs) It's a very action-y film in some spurts i'll say yes a very action very violent film as well Mm -hmm. Um, and uh same goes for his wife she i don't think actually speaks at all until the very end of the film where she has just a couple of lines yeah um other characters kind of speak on their behalf but uh yeah the incident you want to describe the incident uh, that happens that causes him to kind of have to change his his life path yeah, so if I'm piecing this together right... Um, also, just real quick to jump in. Sorry. You're fine. <laughs> but uh, the film, especially the first major half of it, a little more than that, uh, it takes a really a, quite a while to piece together what exactly this event was because it jumps back and forth between um, present day, quote-unquote, and uh, this event. So mm-hmm. you're not really given the full details of the story until much later into the film. Right. But maybe easier just to kind of walk one at a time. Yeah. So for for ease's sake, I'm going to call him Beat. That's, I think, more of his actor name and easier. So we'll say Beat. Um, his partner, Horibe, Horibe um, is shot by someone they were, I think, staking out. And... And he survives, but he ends up in a wheelchair. Now, meanwhile, it seems like maybe while he's in the hospital, I could be wrong. um, They they track down the guy who shot him nearby, and he's a threat. He's in public with a gun, and they're trying to figure out how to take him down. But Beat ambushes him and just tackles him. And another officer... um, jumps in to help beat because he gets punched off and that officer is literally just full body on the, I'll say the perp and, um, gets shot. Well, another officer jumps on to try to help and also gets shot. Um, so the, the initial officer, he dies and leaves a widow and the other officer is kind of the young guy in the group. 
he does survive without seemingly any lasting injuries, but he's the only one from that event to remain on the force. Correct. Um, afterwards, uh, Beat is able to uh, pull out his gun and shoot the perp in the head. Um, and then after he assesses that he is a dead, he is a dead, he is dead, uh, then shoots him in the head six more times. He completely unloads his gun in him. Yes. Yeah. Um, so very violent and has really kind of set beat on uh, a path kind of a vengeance. I mean, it, 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 revenge, really. Yeah, um, he kind of just doesn't doesn't care anymore. He's not abiding by the rules. I don't know if vengeance or revenge is correct. It, it's almost just like trying to put right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I know that that's a form of revenge, but it's... Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem as... The, the world around beat, um, including those involved in the incident, uh, frequently tell him he shouldn't blame himself. Uh, but I mean, he, he clearly does. And he can't let it go. And it, I, you know, I don't fully know if this is maybe kind of a cultural barrier, but it doesn't really seem as though he's actually all that forgiven. Like he is, Mm. but it's kind of like, well, I don't know. I can only tell you not to feel bad for what you did, but cause he, I mean, depending on how you look at it, he's responsible for the death of that officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he definitely holds himself responsible. Um, he visits the widow and he feels quite bad. Yes. Um, he visits Horibe who's in a wheelchair and seems also very guilty about it. And it, I could just be reading between the lines, but it seems like Horibe is not, not leaving be completely blameless. Correct. Also the widow um, has having to uh, work at a uh, a a fast food place to make ends meet. Um, And uh, Haribe is um, having to, uh, I mean, he's, you know, he's confined to a wheelchair and uh, his wife and daughter uh, left him because of this. So he's all alone. He, at one point, tries to commit suicide, uh, which he is not successful in. So, Beat has been taking loans from the Yakuza to, I mean, I assume to fund his wife's medical care. Um, And he's in very deep with them and really has no way to pay them back, let alone the exorbitant interest on those loans. So he concocts a scheme where he flips a taxi and paints it like a police car and robs a bank dressed as a policeman, a very calm, quiet robbery to which no one's really the wiser until he's left. He gets away with it, but um, his, his former colleague, colleague, starts piecing together that it was almost definitely beat that did this robbery when he finds out that the widow received a huge sum of money from him. And also that Haribe received a package with tons of expensive art supplies and beats disappeared along with his wife. Yes. These art supplies came because, uh, Haribe is trying to, uh, reevaluate his life and start anew. And he suggests maybe he can become a painter. 
that uh, he's like, well, I can't afford the supplies for that. So even if I wanted to, I couldn't. So this was after his attempted suicide uh, beat sends him that as a way of saying like, Hey, like there's something to live for. Yes. So uh, just real quick, let's go ahead and kind of walk through uh, Haribe's storyline just because it's kind of short. I mean, in Mm. terms of telling about it, he does go on to start painting. um, And we kind of watch his journey, discovering his artistic ability trying to find happiness through that pain. Um, yeah. And uh, it's a struggle for him. I mean, it's it's hard to, to want to start creating and learn a new craft, uh, but he's eventually inspired by uh, flowers, mm-hmm. and he begins to incorporate them into his work and makes these very beautiful paintings, um, replacing different body parts of humans and animals with different flowers, uh, kind of changing up the anatomy. Mm-hmm. goes on from there to some other styles as well. But that's interspersed throughout the entirety of the film. Uh, it kind of helps give it its slow pace, pacing. Because um, this film has a very, very slow build throughout the whole thing. Yeah. it's uh, We mentioned that it's a, a very violent film, and it is. And I think that that's largely just because of how... Um, granular and just every kind of... Every scene, be it a quiet or violent scene kind of goes along at a very real pace and we're not just constantly bombarded with blood and, and, and death, but we're, we're kind of, it comes up. They're really interspersed. Yes. Yeah. There, I would honestly say there's probably less violent scenes than there are not. (laughs) Yeah. But it also kind of enhances the violence of the scenes cutting in and out between you know, a beautiful painting or a quiet, you know, conversation. And then somebody losing their eye to a pair of chopsticks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is a very, uh, very interesting film in that regard. Um, but that's, that's, uh, uh Harabi's story. Um, so yeah, B, uh, he robs a bank and then at the advice of his doctor, uh, or his wife's doctor, she, he says, you know, she's not going to get any better. You, you should probably take her home and I would maybe go on a trip with her, you know, do something special for her. It would probably be do, do better than being in the hospital. So he takes the rest of the money to go on a trip with her, see the sights, do the things that, you know, a tourist would do and stay at a nice inn, a Ryoko. And, um, but they keep getting interrupted because the Yakuza seems to have figured out that, he has a lot more money than he's letting on as well. And they want the rest of it. They're not just going to let him go, even though he's paid his debts. So they keep coming after him and he keeps finding ways to slip off from his wife and take care of them. And by that, I mean, kill them. Well, I don't know that he kills them up front. He mercilessly beats them. Yeah, that's true. It escalates to a shootout eventually um, when they won't stop leaving him alone. But shortly after this, the police catch up with him, his colleagues. And by this point, it's pretty clear that he's committed crimes. Just as a clarification, he takes care of them when they won't stop bothering him. Right. He uh, beats, beat beats the Yakuza when they won't stop bothering him and eventually kills the Yakuza. Yeah. Sorry. You just said when they won't stop leaving him alone. And I was Mm. like, well, they don't really leave him alone. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, yes, that is true. Sorry. Uh, so it, it ends with, um, the, the couple beat and his wife out on the beach and, uh, his colleagues catch up to him, the police officers, the police officers and say, you know, we got to take you in. He says, well, let me have just one more moment with my wife. Um, so they allow that. And we hear two gunshots and pan away. Also, we didn't really mention this as well. Uh, the couple had a child at one point that a year before the movie at all takes place, anything in the movie is shown, um, the child uh, passed away. We are never really told why, but it was pretty sudden, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that, that kind of helps fill in the gaps as to their behavior. Because um, mm-hmm. I do believe that this murder-suicide was probably planned. I think that it was probably a request of um, the wife. I, I kind of got that. Not only a request, but I don't think that it was something that she wasn't um, aware of happening. I don't think he just up and killed her. I think it was a decision that they made as a couple. Right. Um, but yes, she they, they lost a child as well. Mm-hmm. So that about covers the plot, I think. Mm-hmm. And other details that are pertinent to our ensuing discussion, I'm sure we'll get into, but... Did you, did you like this movie? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really beautiful and I, I have a hard time getting into it, but certainly this is the second time that I've seen it actually. Oh yeah. This is the first for um, us that this is a movie we have both seen before. Yeah. So the first time I just, it was very hard for me to follow and have anything to grasp onto Mm -hmm. for the first half of the movie. This time I didn't have that much of a problem, but it also didn't hit quite as deep. But it was still really good. It was just a good, heartfelt movie with funny moments and sad moments and made you feel things. It took you into the story. So I Very liked it. So. What about you? I liked it as well. I, it's, um, I agree that the, on a second watch, it doesn't really have the same impact. Um, I had very much, I could not remember for, I remember the ending of the movie, but I couldn't, couldn't remember how we got there. And so I was, I felt like I was kind of fresh eyes watching it, but knowing the ending and, and being able to make sense of it this time, it doesn't quite pull the same punch, uh, but it is still very, very good. And I, I really, really love the, the lack of speaking that's done by the main character. Mm. Um, an awesome, awesome job of, of showing and not telling. Um, probably my favorite, and I don't know if I didn't pick up on, I probably didn't pick up on this the first time, but um, at the beginning, every time that Beat returns home to his wife, um, there's a couple of times that he does, and there is some something left at the front of their apartment or building complex. So, yeah. Um, that is, it's a child's toy. It's first, it's a tricycle, and then it's a pair of children's shoes. It's mm-hmm. left in the archway. And I just, I really like, I mean, this movie does this throughout where it, it kind of quietly shows you the pain that the characters are going through yes. without ever having them really even express it. I mean, you don't need to know that there is pain behind these characters losing their child and that every time he comes home, he's reminded that his child is no longer with them. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not overdone. And I think that, you know, 
not remembering all the pieces, but understanding it better this time. If you don't know this aspect of it or anything, or still kind of trying to piece it together, I think it's a lot more subtle on first watch, a little bit more heavy handed on second watch, but regardless, I think it's a very good, uh, uh, way of conveying a lot that these characters have. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, well, do you want to hop into our, our things for this episode? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I will go first. Uh, we're going to change a little bit of just this episode around in terms of the order of things because of my first topic. Um, typically later on in the episode, we talk about um, what this movie reminded us of. Uh, but I'm going to move it here because it, it helps with the top my topic. So was there anything that this movie uh, that reminded you of? I think we should open it up to anything and not just mm-hmm. movies. I mean, was there anything that, yeah, that you you felt reminiscent watching this film. Well, um, in pursuit of different research for this film, I came across a times article that compared it to Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I don't know that I necessarily would have made that leap by myself, but now that I've read it, I definitely see it. I definitely see that Tarantino esque, um, you know, the bright blood, it's not even almost realistic sometimes. And the mix of like ultra violent, like no one bleeds that much from a single punch, but mixed with weird kind of humor moments. Um, yeah, I see that. What about you? That's a really good point. I just, I actually had the same kind of thing happen in terms of Tarantino because, um, I also found some videos that compared it to, to, to Tarantino's work. And um, that led me to an interview with Tarantino uh, that I thought he was actually going to mention um, Hanabi, but he did not. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think Tarantino has quite a way of, of taking genres and putting them together. And in that actual interview, he did talk about, that was one of like his three most in- influential films. One of it, which being, uh, Frankenstein. Um, One of Tarantino's? Yes. Okay. Um, And the combination of these two genres, even though at the time when he was a kid watching the movie, he didn't know of genres, but he was like, oh, these are, this is two of my favorite kind of movies, like monster movies and comedy into one. And like, Mm. that's something there. And I I completely agree. I think that, you know, I, I think it's a hard, hard lane to drive to, to have a violent comedy in that sense. Um, but, uh, this, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. I, I also, um, you know, the, I wish I knew the name of the composer for this, uh, movie. It's somebody that works alongside, uh, Takashi, um, a lot. Uh, apparently he's like him and this composer have worked together, uh, before Hanabi was released. And, um, the music in it, especially there's a track at the end of the film that plays um, really reminded me of the eighties. It's a very mm. kind of like almost Miami vice style musical piece. And I, almost, I, sorry, I just have to say um, I keep forgetting that this movie was 1997 Yeah, because of that. But even like the cars and things kind of look a little older than nineties to me yeah. to an untrained eye. So yeah, music, very eighties. And, uh, you know, that was actually watching it this time. And I think I kind of had the same feeling the first time watching it. 
that track in particular really does not sit well with me at the end of the film. Hmm. Um, and I think it, I don't know. And I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about it because it's kind of an upbeat, upbeat kind of eighties ending song that plays, uh, right before you hear the two gunshots and it's, this track is cut out by the gunshots, which is kind of almost humorous in a way. It's, it's, because it's kind of like, well, so lived our heroes, pan to the ocean, um, as we hear this like kind of techno beat, and then it ends, and I don't know how to feel about that, but that is that is kind of what it made me think of as well. Hmm. But to jump into my first topic, I I, I want to kind of more further explore when I was watching this, what I kept thinking about um, was a film that uh, I'm more familiar with, or at least have, have seen recently as well, uh, was a film from uh, 2011, a film called Drive. I, you, I think a lot of people are familiar with it. It's starring... Ryan Gosling? Starring Ryan Gosling and uh, Carrie Mulligan. Uh, also has Brian Cranston in it as well. Uh, Oscar Isaac is in it. Um, and uh, Ron Perlman. Uh, but it's directed by uh, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. R-E-F-N is his last name, Refn. Um, and uh, it was very, very successful here. Um, I think that it actually kind of got a hold of Western zeitgeist uh, in its uh, cool appearance and, and aesthetic. Uh, and I was noticing very, a very similar kind of path between these two because both films star a near-silent protagonist um, trying to kind of make right in the world. Now, these characters go on very different paths, um, I, I, I kind of hesitate to try and spoil drive cause I do recommend it. It's another very, very violent film as well. Um, and I think it kind of takes a different perspective on that violence, uh, kind of the devil, devil may care type of characters who Ryan Gosling plays, um, also kind of unredeemable by his drive huh, for <laughs> vengeance. But I, I was looking at Hanabi and I thought, you know, okay, if I was a Western director and I saw Hanabi and I wanted to bring it to the States, you know, if you, with some tweaks, you know, you take away, you take away what caused our character to act as violent as he is. So he has a mysterious past. You also, you know, he's not a police officer. He doesn't have that kind of affiliation. So he's got even more of kind of a mystery to him. Uh, driving is kind of somewhat predominant in both of these films, a lot more so in drive, obviously than this one. Um, again, two silent protagonists doing what they can to protect their love interest. Um, I also drive, uh, drives, uh, Carrie Mulligan, uh, is a waitress, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Or am I getting this confused with uh, baby driver? I don't remember. Um, I don't remember what Carrie well, she, Mulligan's character She does. is a single mom. So there is that aspect too, uh, like uh, Beat and Hanabi wanting to care for the uh, now widowed mother and daughter of his partner um, mm. by financial means. And it got me kind of just thinking about, you know, that has to be kind of a popular thing. And I'm not saying that, that this director had ripped off um, Hanabi by any means. I'm not even saying that it was a, an influence. I, I didn't actually look too much into it because that was not my interest. I just thought, you know, kind of a, um, almost a beautiful way to, to, uh, a letter of homage to, to other 
creators on the other side of the world. Like, well, I, I really like this story and idea and I can put my own style, flavor, characters into it um, and make it that way. Uh, and when I just looked at it, I just really kind of like loved to, to play with these stories, um, especially, you know, Hanabi coming out, you know, wow, uh, what is that? Um, 14 years uh, before mm. uh, Drive. So, I mean, there's plenty of time for it to have come up in, into that. But uh, I, I do know that Fireworks or Hanabi also played a bit of, uh, played a bit with the zeitgeist in Japan as well, as far as being popular. Um, mm. And it uh, it won some awards, I believe, at uh, Venice Film Festival that kind of got it international attention. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it it was seen mm. um, by Refn. It, uh, but it got me kind of thinking about what that process would be like. And I can't imagine, oh, I would say for a fact, I mean, there's obviously Western adaptations of foreign language films or Japanese films. Um, but I was curious as to what more nuance takes um, would be from these. So I kind of wanted to beef up this segment for this episode and um, take a look back through the movies we've seen um, and see if we can kind of deconstruct and reconstruct them into other movies um, mm. and see what that would, would, would somewhat look like. I think I'm going to stay away from animation just because we have, I mean, Grave of the Fireflies, um, This Corner of the World, Akira. Were those the only ones? I think those are the only animated films that we, we watched. Yeah. No, uh, your name was the other one. Yeah. While I, I think that Western animation I'm not knocking it by any means. It just it's a different thing entirely. I don't even feel well versed enough to really mm-hmm. say, you know. I think a lot of Western animation looks to Japanese animation for inspiration, and so I mean, yeah. And I think a lot of that even just comes down to style. I really don't know. I don't even think the United States really has the kind of history to even really do some of the stuff that, like in this corner and Grave of the Fireflies does uh, mm. i mean to tell that kind of story i think you know you can maybe maybe get something with like a bit of fifle goes west i don't really remember that film too much i just know that it has to do kind of a coming to america story and um i mean it doesn't hold a candle to to these other things not in a negative way just yeah but anyway i, I kind of wanted to backtrack through what we've seen and just and see if we can make any other films out of the movies we've watched if we if we were looking to make a film what could we take away and be like, oh, well, well, you know, oh, we may drive because we took away some of the aspects of Hanabi um, looking at it that way. So to start with um, House or Haosu, um, I uh, was looking at that and um, I, I it, it's tough because there are so many haunted house movies, mm. you know, um, and you can kind of at first really point a finger to something like the Amityville horror, uh, series, um, which is based around a haunted house, um, in the United States. Uh, I think a remake also starring Ryan Gosling. Um, <laughs> apparently if you want to adapt a Japanese film, uh, in any kind of fashion, you gotta have Ryan Gosling. In it. I was going to say, I, I could be wrong. I'll have to actually look into this and check back with you guys for the fact check. But I want to say drive is actually pretty popular. Um, or was in Japan. Like I've seen posters that are like Doraibu, like it's the Japanese poster for Drive. So I 
I could be wrong here, but I think that both Drive and Ryan Gosling are like household in Japan. Interesting. So. Well, that makes sense also because, I mean, I think that Hanabi, it's not one that I would recommend to just anybody um, because of it. It's a very sad story and, it, and it's kind of a hard watch mm. in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, I think that if somebody came to us to recommend a Western film, if they're like, uh, if you liked action and something in the last 10 or so years, I think drive is great. I mean, especially if you don't have interest in reading subtitles or can't speak the language, uh, both of them, I think almost probably have the same amount of dialogue, but the main character doesn't really speak. Mm -hmm. So both deliver um, a performance that you have to kind of just pick up on based on what they say more or what they do more than what they say. Right. Yeah. I guarantee would be much more palpable to to audiences overseas. Mm. Um, But back to, house you know i um i funny enough kind of the thing that i really and i i wish i had maybe like read back through the plot of this movie but do you remember the animated movie uh monster house no there was an animated movie it probably came out early 2000s called monster house um and it was kind of it wasn't uh like a pixar or anything <gasps> no i do remember mm-hmm. yes absolutely and the kids I, I think they had a babysitter or something at the time but they they end up going into this haunted house while their parents are out or away or something. And the house tries to like eat them basically. Yeah. yeah. I just remember a thing with like the, the vol, the you, you, uvula. Uvula. Yeah. There. That's almost all I remember from that movie. Not much more than scene. I remember. Um, <laughs> but it, it you know, it kind of it made me think about that the the lack of adults and uh, these children kind of placed into a, a uh, omniscient house mm. um, that kind of comes to life. And uh, you know, I could very easily see. I think it's funny that House, um, the nineteen seventy seven one, uh, was through the lens of a child. And then Western audiences, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was some somewhat of an inspiration to adapt it into a, a scary children's movie. Mm. Um, and then just make it animated and just make it animated. And then you don't have to worry about the weird live action versus animated aspects of it. Um, and so I, I think that, I think that that could be kind of a deconstruction of, of house into monster house. Mm. Um, Good grab. I can absolutely see that. I think, yeah. Uh, the next one was, uh, we don't have to go through all of these, but, um, oh, what was the, uh, high school one? The very violent one we watched for October. Ooh. Oh, as the gods will. Yeah. Uh, that's still one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very fun. Uh, that's a very, um, Japanese trope that I've seen here recently, uh, for a while now is, you know, high schoolers kind of getting put in lockdown and having to battle for their lives in, in some form or fashion. Mm. I think that that kind of comes from uh, battle Royale, which is a movie I'd love to watch on the show at some point. Beat Takeshi's in battle Royale as well. He is. He oh. is. Uh, it's uh, I mean, that's the penultimate high schoolers battling it out for survival. Um, it's supposed to be a very good movie. Um, and uh, I would very much like to watch it. Um, but 
it's something that I don't even feel like we actually see too much here. We kind of, I feel like, took the YA uh, novel style Hunger Games kind of approach. Because, mm. I mean, Hunger Games has been, I've heard noted several times as kind of a, a spin on Battle Royale, which it, it, I don't. I don't think so too much. I mean, it's got a bigger hunger games. Have, the hunger games have a much bigger world that they're kind of working with, but it is similar um, in terms of kids versus kids. Mm. Um, but uh, I don't know. That one's kind of tough. I actually didn't have a pull for that one, but I was wondering if you had any, you know, anything that it, we could deconstruct it in any way. I mean, really to me, the hunger games is actually still about the closest. Like, kids put into a situation by someone else. And I think in both cases, you could say a mysterious higher power, Mm -hmm. right? Someone behind the scenes that says, you don't all get out of here alive. Go for it. You know? Right. Um, With different sort of twists and tricks along the way. And the kids trying to cheat the system if they can, like, trying to make it out or, or bend the rules. So very much so that one's a little challenging just because of its, um, relation to, to that Japanese kind of trope of, of high schoolers getting stuck in, in a thing, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of like a full one-to-one thing. I don't know that we have many high schoolers, literal high schoolers trapped in school type of thing. Yeah the very real world setting of it. Cause I guess that like you were saying that that difference, that spin that I think we largely took here in America of like, it, it's a dystopian thing. It's a YA dystopia novel. Um, different. That's very different from a, this could be tomorrow and something weird happened in a high school. Right. Well, let's do one more just real quick. Um, Forgive me. What was the one we just watched recently where uh, the uh, the cellist departures departures, you know, film has kind of a strange relationship when it comes to funerals uh, or movies based around death in any, any means, Um, especially here in the West. They're kind of usually a plot point instead of a, uh, a whole centric movie around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I was for that one. I, I, I think a lot about what if we added on to this universe and added more to it. And, um, I think this actually came kind of after departures, but I, I still would like to, to deconstruct it and reconstruct it. Uh, there was an H well now I'm, I don't remember if it was HBO or Showtime, not the important thing series called six feet under, um, mm-hmm. that involved a family and the, uh, the funeral business, um, the moratorium. I can't, I can't think I, what's the word for this? I guess funeral. I haven't business. seen it. I well, don't know. <laughs> well, the funeral business. I mean, in terms of they, they run a funeral home mm. and I think that, you know, if we took the characters from departures and kind of flushed them all out more and, and gave them their own journeys and struggles with, um, operating a, a funeral home and, and the social kind of back and forth between that, I think departures would turn into something like six feet under. Um, also has a lot of uh, 
uh, connections. Six feet under the series starts with uh, uh, our pretty much our main character, uh, their the father, the patriarchal figure of the the family, uh, dies in a car accident, and um, and uh, similar to departures and the kind of lost connection between son and father um, from that as well. Hmm. Don't know. That was just kind of an idea of a segment that I just wanted to explore with this movie. But uh, what did you bring? Well, I wanted to take a minute to focus on the artwork because it, it was featured very prominently. Um, and if you hadn't pieced together by now, I'll make it very clear. Takeshi Kitano had his hands all over this movie in like eight different ways. And one of those ways was the artwork. Um, I don't think it was 100% of the artwork in the movie, but the vast majority of the artwork was actually made by Takeshi. So as it turns out, in 1994, he had a motorcycle crash and it was debilitating. Um, Doctors didn't think he'd really actually recover, let alone be able to move around and act and do all that stuff again. Uh, he did recover clearly. Um, but you can even see like some of the, the remnants of his crash in the movie. Um, he has it. I, I kind of read a few different places, like a tick kind of, um, like part of his face was paralyzed for a while. Um, so you can see sometimes he'll have like a lopsided smile or like a tick to his smile. Um, but it, it really changed his trajectory a bit. It's interesting you say that because, um, I didn't know that. And there's a trait for the character in the film. It seems like when he starts to get frustrated, um, he, he starts to, to blink out of one eye further mm. situation, get more intense. And I, I just wonder if that was kind of a character choice for him of letting that tick maybe loosen a little bit and, and bringing it out in those kind of more intense character deciding moments when he's getting frustrated, he starts to to blink with one eye um, mm. kind of rapidly and unnaturally something that doesn't happen the rest of the time. Sorry. I just thought that'd be interesting. I would be surprised if he didn't use that. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of him as a person is very much in this movie. Um, I think you could easily see Hori Bay as him after the motorcycle crash. Um, he describes himself as being very depressed and alone. Um, he, he has said in an interview that in retrospect, it, it was basically a suicide attempt, that motorcycle drive. He was drunk. And he drove on the motorcycle and he says, I don't think I wanted to live. Um, but he did. And um, I found another quote, which was really funny, was that when he came out of it and he decided to take up painting, one of his thoughts was like, oh, well, sometimes people get, you know, hit on the head and they find out they're like, you know, a piano prodigy or, you know, they uncover some talent and so he started painting and quickly discovered he was not <laughs> the prodigy or the talent that he'd hoped for, um, which he laughed at himself a bit. And, but the art is definitely striking. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Um, It's very bright and vivid and strange. I mean, you see like a lady with a, like a lily for a head and a kimono and they're, they're almost childlike. I've seen them described Mm -hmm. as naive style. Um, And for a long time, he refused to have his artwork put into a display or an exhibit but he finally agreed to this one in Paris in, I want to say, let's see, 2010. And part of the agreement, it wasn't just his art in a museum. They made a whole, like, interactive, wild, almost amusement park-esque exhibit aimed at kids. Hmm. And it had, like, moving parts and, like, they they had this whole line of little 3D adaptations of the kind of animals with flower heads that you see in the film. Hmm. It's just, it's also interesting because the, the exhibit was a great success. It even got extended out a little bit. Um, but he, he still considers himself an amateur artist and he, Takeshi Kitano, he, um, he says basically that he, he sticks his hand in all these different ventures because he doesn't consider himself to be terribly good at any one of them. Um, which, which was just interesting to me. Um, he's a very, very interesting dude. And I guess that's really all I have to say about the art that I can say. I would definitely recommend going and looking at some more some more of his art and looking at that exhibit. It's mind-blowing that he's got like goldfish with hippo heads and I don't know, just some really wild there's one self-sculpture that's him but he's holding his brain in his hand with like the trail of nerves coming out of his head Mm. just weird things and the whole idea is that like see things in a different way and the i i I, the idea i took away from reading about the exhibit was that kids are really the only ones who are going to get everything out of this exhibit that they can like This is, in some ways, like, by kids for kids. Obviously, Takeshi was very much an adult when he did this, but he's got this childlike art and wonder that's actually really difficult for adult artists to do. And I think that's part of what makes his art so incredible and amazing is because adults really do have a difficult time being able to harness and create that kind of creativity. Um, so yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about with the art and the movie. So with all that said, what's your second topic, Brandon? Uh, the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about was, um, something I'm very, not versed in, so I'll do my best, but, uh, the economy. <laughs> everybody's, <laughs> Let's talk about the economy. Everybody's favorite talk topic, uh, the economy. Uh, I specifically wanted to talk about uh, the economy of Japan in the 90s. I think we've touched on this in earlier episodes a little bit, uh, but the 90s were actually very rough for Japan. Uh, It's known as the lost decade. Uh, After World War II, um, the United States and and the Allies uh, 
they basically didn't want a repeat after World War One, uh, where World War One, uh, World War One, not mumbling through my words, um, saw kind of a pressure against uh, specifically Germany that inevitably led to World War Two, uh, or made it very easy to kind of flip back into the uh, to war, and mm. so that was uh, a fear that they did not want to repeat. So they helped uh, Japan rebuild uh, from the war and the devastations of the atomic bombs and poured a lot into infrastructure that led to Japan being kind of a powerhouse um, and still is today. I believe it is third behind um, uh, China and the United States as far as uh, the economy goes, whatever that means exactly. <laughs> but it, um, the nineties, uh, saw a great stagnation, um, in the economy. What was for years, this huge growth year after year, decade after decade, after the forties, um, was hit by a similar thing that happened, uh, in the United States in 2008, which we apparently didn't learn from, um, anyone and, uh, <laughs> had a lot of banks, uh, lending out, exorbitant amount of money. Uh, the 80s were kind of a party time in Japan um, by a lot of accounts because people had a lot more money and were able to, to spend it. Um, however, uh, this led to kind of a collapse and, and kind of just a total stagnation and for the first time a growth, growth in unemployment in the 90s. And I saw a lot talking about this film's reflection on that time. It was kind of the peak of, of the, the lost decade when this film came out and it's kind of subtly and quietly in the background, uh, throughout, um, specifically, uh, I, I want to talk about the bank robbery scene, um, mm. because both times watching it, you know, I, I kind of admired, the film's direction in this bank robbery, not being one of the violent scenes in the film, but it's actually played out very quietly and is in that way, very much more of a realistic bank robbery, I think where, you know, um, beat just walks straight up to, uh, uh, the counter pulls out a gun and hands the clerk a bag. She runs to the back. Only a few people notice, but nobody does anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I saw this kind of talked about as being just the exhaustion that the last decade had placed on the people of Japan and how mm. it was a um, particularly rough period of time because it was hard to, uh, it was just, it was just work. The party had ended uh, from the eighties and, and it was uh, just kind of a grind at this point. Mm. Um, you know, eventually Japan kind of came out of that, but um, over the course of 20 years, the, I don't know if it's GDP or just the, the amount of money that the, the banks have in circulation um, is uh, actually hasn't changed. Um, it's the same amount roughly um, between the nineties and now. Oh, like they haven't printed a bunch of money or anything to, mm. re, to like inflate it. We, I think that's inevitably what they did to kind mm. of get out of that. And it somewhat worked. Um, but it, uh, it, it hasn't grown since then. And, and I mean, the economy mm. has bolstered and kind of recovered. Um, but I also learned, uh, Japan is actually, um, in serious debt, um, as mm. a country. Uh, 
I didn't know this about the United States uh, debt, but we have, of course, was something like nearly $30 trillion in debt. Is that what we're at now? But I didn't know this. It's only a couple trillion off of our GDP. Um, Huh. Yeah. So we're not, we're we're actually, it's not as uh, obscene as it may seem. It is obscene, but it's not as unrealistic as it, as it may be. It's like being $300 in debt when you're making 280. Whereas uh, Japan is currently nearing seven, six or seven trillion dollars deficit um, between what their debt is and what their GDP is. Mm. Um, so uh, I just, I thought that was interesting because it is the, the while it's a very boring topic, the economy and, and, and everything, it is a great way, I think, to view um, films based on what the world looked like for that particular country or, or group of people. Mm. Um, we recently just watched, uh, rewatched uh, the Matrix trilogy, which was released in late 90s, early 2000s. 99 was the first film. And there is a huge push because uh, at that time, you know, this is the internet boom was kind of beginning and um, there's so much in the kind of almost corporate slog that was taking place at this time. People were becoming uh, disenchanted with the cubicle lifestyle and all of the fight scenes in the matrix are, um, they take place in actually mundane, very oppressing locations inside the matrix. Mm. Um, you know, the, one of the first being, you know, seeing Keanu Reeves' character Neo in this, I mean, cookie-cutter, cubicle-type office that looks like a dystopian hellscape, for lack of a better term. It's like a literal rat maze. Exactly. And, you know, I think that I I kind of like looking at uh, Hanabi in that way, in that it's, you know, there are these tourist destinations, but they're also just these very kind of quiet realities that people are, are living in, you know, with the widow having to take up a job. I mean, she did just lose her husband. You kind of think there'd be a pension or something that would help mm. sustain her, but it, it hasn't even been a year and she's having to work uh, at a, a quick service restaurant to, to survive. Mm. And, you know, I don't think that this film would have taken the light that it did without that reality. Another film from the West that does this uh, is fight club. Um, you know, it's, mm. it's very much a tired uh, view on what capitalistic United States looks like and, and being tired of that rat race. Mm. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting view. And, and I, I'm kind of interested to look more at films as we go on, especially if you watch anything from the nineties from Japan how the lost decade plays with that. Hmm. That's really interesting. A tiny side tangent. Um, from what I've heard that that lost decade is where a lot of Japan's population problems also spring from hmm. um, where, you know, before that in like the booming, you know, eighties and stuff, you could have a salary man, you know, working real hard, working late hours, but supporting his family, being able to send his kids to college, a wife stays home, takes care of the kids, and you could have that one income family and they'd have good benefits and they'd be guaranteed a job for life. Um, 
and guaranteed pension. But then with that lost decade, that all kind of flies out the window and suddenly you aren't guaranteed your job or your pension or a raise. Um, and women start having to work and it's hard to work and take care of the house and the kids. So people just stopped having kids, but one of, one of many things, I mean, obviously a lot of things play into this, but it is interesting to look at it from an economic perspective. Very much so. Uh, what's your last topic? So actually real quick, before I jump to my last topic, I'm going to also bring something from the end a little further up. Um, one of our listeners who happens to be my mom, Tanya, um, asked a very good question that I thought I could shed a little light on, which is why it's called fireworks or Hanabi. Hmm. And this gets into some language stuff that's really interesting to me. But um, like, like you were saying, a lot of times, even in America, it's still Hanabi instead of fireworks. But it, Hanabi is definitely the word for fireworks in Japan. But it's not typically like hyphenated or separated out like that. Like even the way it's written in Japanese doesn't use the kanji, which means fireworks. Um, but it, it literally means Hana is flower and B or he is fire. Um, so that's where the word fireworks comes from, but it's, it's separated out. And I think this was something that Takeshi Kitano had told it was in the same New York times article that I was reading about, um, Quentin Tarantino. Um, but he wanted to emphasize those two pieces of the word that create fireworks. And obviously fireworks play a role in the film. They watch fireworks. Um, they paint fireworks, but also flowers play a role and the flowers symbolize life. And the fire symbolizes that burning out, or it could symbolize the vengeance that we see in, um, in Beat's character. So just wanted to shed a little light on that. That's where fireworks comes from. I'd also like to, uh, add tack onto that. Um, there, there's also, I think kind of the, the way of looking at, um, more literal with fireworks and how it plays into the story of how there is kind of, um, throughout the film, a sense of anticipation building towards something grand, but fireworks all over actually somewhat are kind of unpredictable. You have a set of expectations that um, so many factors can go into altering that and changing the course and narrative of be it your life or the film. Um, so much so as, I mean, being a dud of a firework and not going off. And mm. um, there is the scene where they do set off fireworks uh, the couple and um, the first one doesn't actually go off at first. He has to go up and try and fix it. And then it goes off and kind of goes off into his face and it, it, it's its own kind of thing. And I think that that also kind of ties into the story. There's this building anticipation of a grand finale and explosion at the end um, and not really knowing what that means. And I think that that final shot, the pan away from the couple and the, the quiet of the sea is similar to, to watching a sky and, waiting for um, the release that fireworks uh, inevitably bring mm. from the anticipation that's being built. Um, so I, I think that that's also somewhat in play in the story and, and plot for the film. Mm. That's a really, 
good. Yeah, that end could almost be interpreted as a firework. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was gorgeous. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your last thing? Yeah. So lastly, I wanted to address disability, specifically in Japan, um, because that's, I mean, that's really Horibe's little side plot, which directly relates to Takeshi Kitano um, and his very personal experience that he put in this film. Um, And I've I've heard kind of different things about disability in Japan, and I've kind of heard vaguely that it's very frowned upon. I mean, one of those things that it's not an orderly piece of society, so they just don't make a place for it in society. Um, So I looked into it a little more, and like like anywhere, things change over time. Um, So I'm not saying like, oh, Japan hates disability, because that's not the whole story here. Um, But to start out with, um, we were talking about after the war, right? And we've talked about this a lot in different episodes, but there was an extreme food shortage, as there tends to be after war, especially when you're on what might be considered a losing side, right? And one of the things that the Japanese government did was they, it seems quietly, wrote into law that you could forcibly sterilize someone with mental or physical disabilities, like with or without their knowledge or acceptance of a procedure. So this actually happened a lot. Um, It's just an estimate, but it was something like 25,000 men and women were sterilized um, after the war and more than 16,000 of those, more than half, it was against their will or their knowledge. Wow. So this was a really bad stain and it didn't come out either for a long time because people with disabilities were often in the background in Japan And for a long time, they were put in institutions. Families couldn't or wouldn't take care of them. And there really wasn't the infrastructure in place to take care of them if the families wanted to. Um, But it started changing, particularly in 2016. There was an incident, if you can call it that, where a former care worker who worked at one of those facilities for people with disabilities went on a rampage and I don't even know if rampage is the right word. It was premeditated. He had decided that disability people with disabilities were a drain on the government because Japan has a national healthcare system and he knew the facility and he knew the people there and he went in and tried to kill them all. And the government was not unaware that this was a possibility. He had sent a letter to, I think it was the local police station or the local government office, offering to perform eugenics and kill people with disabilities. Wow. Um, But there was apparently no heightened security after that. And he got away with killing, not got away with, he, he was able to go into this facility while there were people working there and kill 19 people. 
and seriously injure at least 25 more. Wow. Now, the one silver lining to all of this is it got Japan talking about people with disabilities and how people view them. Um, per, like with, with physical disabilities, that's been, I think, a quicker recovery to looking at those as people. Um, with mental disabilities, it's been a bit of a slower recovery, but you will see, especially in larger cities where they have more funds, um, they actually provide a lot of personalized care now uh, through that government fund where you can have someone come into your house, you know, X number of hours in a month, depending on the level of your need and help out with cooking or cleaning, or you can get more or less a stipend or a discount to, um, you know, retrofit your apartment for a disability and be able to still live independently and be a member of society. Um, so it is improving. And after that incident in 2016, um, Japan finally, um, came out and apologized for that law that was put into place. And it had been in place from 1948 until 1996. That's when that law was repealed. Um, and since then also a lot of people, not a lot of people, that that's the other part is there's still a big culture of shame around this. So, um, some people have come forward and said, yes, I was forcibly sterilized and, um, they're trying to get government apologies or compensation for that as well. Um, they did get an apology for the sterilizations. Um, but then, uh, as of last, I had heard updated from the 2016 massacre, which was the worst that had happened in Japan. Um, I think since world war two, <clears throat> um, only, two families actually came out and let their identities be known in any sort of way. Everyone else remained completely anonymous because there is just such a shame and a fear around disability. But like I said, it is getting better. And in some ways they're, especially with their healthcare system, they're actually kind of beyond what you see in America or in Canada, which is, um, I watched a video with, uh, a person who was born in Canada and working in Japan talking about his experience comparing the two. Um, but all that kind of culminates in, as we've talked about also on the show, Japan is hosting the 2020 Olympics this year. Um, they're also hosting the 2020 Paralympics this year, a few weeks after the Olympics concludes. So that's also kept this discussion alive, I think, to some extent, um, gearing up for the Paralympics and disability activist groups, really using this leverage to try to make life better for people with all kinds of disabilities living in Japan. So I wanted to give that background particularly to give a little insight on Horibe in the movie 
and kind of that desperation he feels and also why his family would just up and leave him. It seems maybe extreme if you're in the West in 2020 looking at it, like, oh, come on, like he's going to get a pension, you would think, or whatever, and you don't just leave your husband. But if you understand that deep culture of shame and the lack of help there was at the time, it can start to make more sense. Um, but also I wanted to share this as a good background to gear up for next month's movie, which is called 37 seconds. So 37 seconds is a 2019. So it's one of our most recent, if not, yeah, one of our most recent films that we're going to watch. And last I checked, it is available on Netflix, but, um, at some point, we'll let you know where else you can watch it to get ready for August. Yes. I'm very excited for that. That will be... The August episode is the one year, because we started our first episode in, in August as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the official one year. We've done 12 months. This will be the the year. Well, it's coming up by the end of the year, so we'll have some new movies coming out. Uh, the new movie list for 2022. Mm-hmm. So very excited for that. Do you want to go ahead and teach us our lesson? Yeah. So we end off with me teaching you a phrase to say in Japanese. And this time I felt like it'd be appropriate to say, let's see the fireworks. So it's Hanabi o Mimasho. Hanabi o Mimasho. Mm-hmm. So Hanabi we talked about as fireworks and me is to see, masho is like, let's do something. So, Hanabi o mi masho. That one's pretty, I got that one. Yeah, I thought it'd be nice. We can incorporate the title of the movie, make it a little easier. Yeah. Hanabi o mi masho. Yeah. So, you can, you can say that in Japanese now. Let's see the fireworks. Very nice. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, Donna will be back momentarily with the fact check for this episode and uh we will see you all i'll see you uh next month for 37 seconds all right well thank you all so much for listening and until next time jamata jamata hi this is donna and i'm back with your fact check let's jump right in Brandon couldn't remember the name of the composer for Hanabi. The music is by Joe Hisaishi, and that's H-I-S-A-I-S-H-I. In the film Drive, the love interest Irene, played by Carrie Mulligan, is just the main character's neighbor, not a waitress. Drive came to Japanese theaters in 2012 and did not gross terribly high. It ranked 177th in the box office that year. I don't know why. I was so certain that both Drive and Ryan Gosling are staples in Japan. Maybe they've gained popularity since or outside of the Drive theatrical run. If you know more, let us know. Amityville Horror stars the other Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Maybe it's a Ryan thing. Monster House was a 2006 film And Six Feet Under was, in fact, an HBO series that ran from 2001 to 2005. 
And Brandon was definitely correct that Japan is the third in countries' economies ranked by gross domestic product. But I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to share the 2021 numbers. Coming in at first is the United States, and these are all in US dollars, at 20.49 trillion. China in second at 13.4 trillion, and Japan in third at 4.97 trillion. Japan's national debt to GDP ratio is 256%, and the US is 98%. I couldn't remember what level of government received the letter outlining the plan to kill people with disabilities. The ex care worker had sent the letter to Japan's parliament a few months before the attack. Known as the Sagamihara stabbings, it was the highest casualty mass killing in Japan since the 1945 Hanaoka incident involving prisoners of war. Our August movie, 37 Seconds, is on Netflix for the US and Canada. Please watch it and let us know what you think. You can send an email to okiokishow at gmail.com, and that's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at okiokishow. And as Brandon said, you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash okiokishow. Just look for the message icon at the top. Thank you all for listening. Kiyotsukete.